Thank you, children, for playing a part in leading us in, uh, into worship with the Lord and reminding us to trust in the Lord. <clears throat> and for being humble about it. <clears throat> what a beautiful day. I'm sure you noticed, as I did this morning when I walked out the door, the marked difference in the climate. About a week ago, it was so stifling, you could hardly even breathe. And then this morning, I almost had to turn back around and put my long johns on. It was 60 degrees at my house early this morning. 60 degrees. Thank God for reprieves in the weather at summertime. Well, as you know, we only made it uh, partially through our sermon last week, one third of the way. And um, so the bulletin actually is one week in advance. You do have to still keep your fire in the fireplace. We'll get to that passage in 27 through 30, but that will come after our communion Sunday. So that's two weeks away because I broke this sermon into two parts. So this morning, really, the last two points of the sermon will be part two of how do we keep from killing one another in Matthew 21 through 26, which is Jesus talking about the commandment, thou shalt not murder. And if you have not heard part one, these really go together, this passage. And so if you missed it for any reason, I encourage you to go online and listen to that sermon. Thanks to the sound crew and the helmet lurzer, you can listen to sermons online. And I would encourage you to do that because this is really kind of a package passage. But Jesus is preaching what we know of as the Sermon on the Mount, and he's turned his attention to, to talking about the law of God. And in particular, he doesn't start, he's talking about the Ten Commandments, and he'll share six such commandments with us, but he doesn't start at the top and work his way down. For whatever reason, he begins to talk about, you have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. And we're learning from Jesus's words here. That's not enough just that we haven't killed anybody. It's not enough just that we haven't really thrown a temper tantrum or gotten angry. And it's not enough that we haven't thrown away, I mean, thrown out any name calling at anybody. We're still in disobedience if that's all we're doing because it's very possible that other things in our lives that are precious are dying around us. And Jesus starts to talk about the life of relationships, not just physical life, but also the life of relationships. So this talk about relationships, amazingly, is within the, the, the context of this commandment about not killing one another. And it's not just about not doing each other harm, but the exact opposite in having this attitude as kingdom citizens, as kingdom people, of absolutely cherishing each other's lives. And what's supposed to be maintained and cherished in this part of the passage are relationships. And Jesus says, in the act of worship, if it comes to your mind, if you become aware of a relationship in your life that's sick or wounded or ailing or really dying, Go and do whatever is within your power to mend it. And so that's what we're talking about today. I want to go ahead and read Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. You've heard it. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable 
to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So mending relationships, believe it or not, is tied into this one of the Ten Commandments. Mending relationships. Of course, the opposite of not wanting to harm life is wanting to promote life. And Jesus, as he does in every situation, takes the commands and the reality of life and he brings it right into our hearts like a lightning bolt. He always draws us right to our own hearts when he talks about sin and righteousness. And we are reminded that it's from our hearts that our attitudes and our opinions are formed about people. It is from our hearts that we either value or devalue one another. And it's from our hearts where love blossoms or perhaps hate for one another grows. And I won't go into detail again, but last week we mentioned seven signs from Timothy Keller. If you're wondering, is there a relationship in my life that perhaps needs to be mended? How might I know? Most of the time, I think we do know, but these are just seven, seven clues, seven signs that something might be in need. First, he says, when you feel yourself just getting cold hearted, you know, relationships do need to stay warm with initiations and so forth. And if you feel yourself getting cold, you're, you're, it's not as important to you. You're letting your heart move away. Second, you hear a person that is having problems and you get a little sense of satisfaction out of hearing that this particular person is going through some problems. So there's a sense in us that we might feel happy at their unhappiness. Third, he says he calls it the irritation test, and that is... Uh, Anybody else could have done the same thing and gotten away with it. You never thought a second about it. But when this particular person does it, it, it really rubs you wrong. And that is because we have become hypersensitive to the other person's flaws or weaknesses or failures or whatever, or even just nuances, because there's something wrong in our relationship. Fourth, another sign is just a general awkwardness. You're just uncomfortable. It gets a little messy. Now, being around this person. Fifth, avoidance. Perhaps you've been there before. And that is where, you know, now it's not just awkward and messy, but I don't really even want to be around them at all. So I'm going to kind of go out of my way to avoid this person. <clears throat> Six, exposing their faults 
bring great joy. So I hate to have to tell you this dirt about this person, but I think I will anyway, kind of thing. And then lastly, if these things do not go unchecked, it is possible that it could get to the level of just being totally cut off. You unfriend them. Matter of fact, if you get around them because things have not been mended, sparks will fly. That's that. This is where family feuds, deep, deep, deep issues and problems can take place if attitudes do not go checked. John Piper said about this, If contempt for a brother or sister imperils your soul, if it threatens to cut you off from God forever, then you can't just come happily on your way to worship. It's unlikely that God would receive the offering of your worship while you despise your brother in your heart. And that's what we looked at last week. And so today I want to just flesh this out a little bit, what it looks like. And secondly, um, the first was the life of relationships. And secondly, our limited role. A good question to ask would be, If I get to the point where I am submitting my heart to God, though it may be painful, and that I am sincerely willing to humble myself and consider the other person, look at my own heart. I'm I'm willing to look at my own sin, my own failures, my own faults, and go to this person with a sincere desire to mend a relationship. And I leave my gift at the altar, just as God said, and I go vulnerably. Does that guarantee relationship will take reconciliation will take place? The answer is no. Even though we might do the personal hard work on our end of wanting to seek it out and mend it. It is no guarantee that it will be reciprocated. The forgiveness takes one. There's there's nobody that can stop you from repenting and forgiving before God and others because that's on you. But reconciliation, walking in agreement takes two. And there are cases where the other person is simply unwilling to reciprocate. There are cases where the other person is not willing to see their sin. Or to acknowledge it. There's cases where the other person is not willing to forgive. No matter how humble and sincere you are. And repentant you are. Even though you may have committed to make changes before the Lord. And not act in that way if you have been obnoxious or offensive. It does not mean. Unfortunately, and I wish it did. I wish that the world worked that way. But our hearts do not always comply with God's law. Sometimes it takes two, but it is still our job to go. And even though we might think in our minds, wouldn't it just be easier if I repent to myself and not go to that person because I know what they're going to say to me. Our responsibility is to still go. Now, this passage insinuates in a lot of different areas that we are the ones that have been the offenders. We've done something To rile them up and they could take us to court if we're not careful, Jesus says. So we're the ones to go and seek peace. But what if the other person is the offender? We're in a relationship 
The other person is obviously in sin. In fact, they have sinned against us. Do we then get to wait for them to have their eye-opening experience, wait for them to have their time of humility and repentance and come to us? And when they are willing to do that, then we'll carry on. We'll get there in more detail in Matthew 18, but you probably know this passage, 15 through 20. Jesus gives another teaching, only this time you're the one that's been sinned against, rather the one that has been doing the offending. He says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, stay and wait for him to repent and be humble about it and initiate the reconciliation. It's not what it says. This time, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And I bring these two passages up because Jesus' teaching is that it's always your move. Isn't that interesting when it comes to relationships? Whether you're the one that has done the offending or whether you have been offended, it's always your move. And I think it's an indicator of how important relationships are to God, especially in the kingdom of God, especially within the citizenship, within the saints of God. The the idea is that if there's anything wrong, no matter what direction it's coming from, it is on us to take the initiative and and to go. So whoever is aware of it first is the one that has the responsibility to go. It's always our move. But I just want us to be aware that so we're not crushed over the fact that I finally got over myself and I'm finally willing to do something about this. And I went to this person and they didn't even they weren't they didn't even welcome me warmly. They were stiff necked before I even walked into the door. I don't want us to be crushed thinking that this is some kind of promise or guarantee because it takes two. You can be refused. You can be stiff-handed, thubbed, snubbed, whatever you want to call it. They may not listen. Of course, in Matthew 18, he says, go just you and privately. It's just between you two and try to reconcile draw attention to this fact to give a person an opportunity to repent. But if they don't listen, then get some of your brothers in Christ, your sisters in Christ, and then go. And then if they don't listen, then get the church. And the idea is that every let this person know that everyone wants reconciliation. Everyone wants to see them walk in, in repentance and wholeness and forgiveness. The whole Christian community here wants godliness and health. Relational health. Let them know that. Bring that to them. And, of course, if they refuse that, then there's grounds for church discipline. And we'll look at that at another time when we get there. But for now, the point is, we need to know that just because we inconvenience ourselves, perhaps, and make the trip back, doesn't mean the other person will, will walk in step. Which means we have a limited role In this act of worship. And it is an act of worship. To reconcile relationships. To maintain relationships. To repent and to ask forgiveness. And to forgive. It's all an act of worship before God. 
But Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all. Which is to say that it doesn't all depend on you, but you play an important part. The on you. Have you ever noticed in Scripture the, the, that when you become a Christian, now it's kind of on you to do things right? Like God enlightens us to, to truth and reality, and now it's on you through the power of God to do things right. So it's on you. It's our responsibility, the burden to live as citizens of the kingdom is on us whenever possible. So we, we have to take the initiative. We have to do everything within our power to make things right, to maintain relationships. But if people don't respond, then that's all that we can do. That's it. And so the rest depends on them. And there are some relationships that will be left in that kind of a uh, State of tension where you have done everything you know to do and the other person just still is not willing to go any farther. For whatever reason, unfortunately, there will be relationships in that stage or that season as well. So you're finished, I would say. You've done your part going back to God, going back to the altar. Continue with your gift and your sacrifice and worship the Lord. Your heavenly father is pleased With your gospel obedience. He's pleased with your attitude of heart and your humility. With your efforts to seek this. Now come back and continue your worship. There's another scenario that we can consider. What if you know somebody that is offended at you. And you know this not because they've come to you. But people have a way. We can't all hide it real well. And we have our little ways of getting little digs in. We have our little ways of letting people know you've crossed me. You've offended me. It might be snarky, some kind of dig or whatever. Anyway, you know this person has made it pretty clear on different occasions that they are not happy with you. And so you get the hint and you sincerely go before the Lord and you search your heart and God says, Lord, is there any wicked way in me? And you take some time, a season of prayer, because your heart is to obey Scripture, to glorify God. And for the life of you, you just can't think of anything you possibly could have done that would serve as an offense to this person. So then you get some godly counsel around you. You go to people that you respect or people that you know you and say, look, I I sense relational tension I've searched my heart. I don't see anything. Maybe I have a blind spot. Can you help me with this? Will you pray with me? I open myself up to your correction. If you can see why I have offended this person. And so you get godly counsel to help you in that area. And of course you want to be willing to repent. But. Your godly counsel comes back and says, you know, I've thought about this. I've prayed about this. I've known, I know you. I know how you act in public. I know how you act with this other person. And I am not aware of anything either. So then what do you do? If you've 
used all the resources and means within your power to know how to repent and that there's nothing there to repent of. Does that mean that you have to just stay away from the altar because somebody's upset with you, but you don't have any idea why? And so you can't, you got to kind of put your worship of God on hold. Well, no. There are times, maybe they're rare. Most of the times, I think if we look hard enough, we'll find something. But there are times when we can be literally falsely accused. There are times when people can be offended at us. Maybe they misunderstood something or maybe they just didn't like something. And they are very, very offended at us and they will make it known that they are offended at us. But there is nothing on our part to be repentant of that we are aware of. So we can't go to them in that kind of attitude of repentance. We can go to them very humbly and sincerely and willing to hear and willing to be taught and corrected. And scripture teaches us always to look out for the other person. To do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as better than yourselves. And each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so we can have that attitude in mind and go. But if there simply is, you, you've used scriptural resources to bring to light sin and there simply is no sin there, then there's nothing to repent of. And I would say for the sake of truth, don't pretend that you did offend that person in that way just to make peace because you can't take the relational tension because that's a falsehood. That's responding falsely to a false charge if you've done nothing wrong. And so for the sake of truth, we need to maintain that if we try to keep relationships going just to keep peace In other words, if we say we're wrong and we repent as if we've done something wrong and there's nothing there, it's still on them. Is that a healthy relationship to be in? Is that what we want to keep going? Is that honoring the Lord? For the sake of truth, we have to sometimes stand in it and stick to it and not pretend repent. We can say we're sorry. We can be sensitive. I feel your pain. But I do not have anything that I need to repent of as far as that goes. It takes two to walk in agreement. The fact is, when you live for Jesus, and he warned us about this, you're going to be falsely accused. When you live for Jesus, he was falsely accused. Jesus was absolutely pure and blameless, if you can believe it. Because I don't know anybody like that. It would, be, it would have been nice to know somebody like that. But he was absolutely pure and blameless, and yet he managed to offend just about everybody. A lot of people were mad at Jesus, and about everybody in the world has blamed God for one thing or another. I, I know I have. And yet Scripture makes it plain, God is absolutely pure. There is no defilement in Him. At, you, you can't hold Him down in any kind of accountability for any wrongdoing because it is not in Him at all. And yet our hearts will find something there. 
and want to blame God. They blame Jesus and people will want to blame us as well. And sometimes today, I'm sure it's always been this way, but people get grouped into certain generic identifications. And so just by virtue of the fact that you're a Christian or even more specifically an evangelical Christian, people already have in mind what they think about you and how they value or devalue and what you stand for, what you believe, how you're going to act and what you think about that. So we can get generically accused and grouped into uh, the camp of the enemy just by virtue of our identification. But Christians have always been falsely accused. Back in the days of the Roman Empire under Nero, the great fires of Rome, it was the Christians that were the scapegoats. They took the blame for that and they were martyred. They were burned for it. If we stand for this kind of kingdom truth and if we live it out doesn't always go well and it doesn't always go smooth. And we can be falsely accused. As a matter of fact, when I was preparing the sermon, I came upon an article talking about being grouped generically that basically says there's, I say, uh, the group of progressives say that there's a terrible problem going on in this world of overpopulation. And the answer is to, of course, stop having so many children. And that's not a biblical teaching. The Bible says children are a blessing. And so some people would say, no, children are a threat. They are threatening our civilization. Something needs to be done about it. And society needs to be re-indoctrinated about childbirth. And Scripture says children are not a threat to civilization. They are an incredible blessing to civilization. We need babies in this world to be blessed. So there's this conflict. And a lot of times there are groups that pressure this kind of teaching. There's a, there's a cultural kind of pressure and bullying that takes place under this, these accusations. Matter of fact, I'm sure you're aware of it, that there's cultural and political pressure sometimes um, based on this indoctrination of contrary teaching lawmakers have put into law policies to limit childbearing and in other countries they just people just did it on their own so in this article it talked about denmark in particular where the people just decided they, they liked their education they liked their careers and decided uh, to forego the experience of children and it became an alarming thing in denmark because it was causing economic chaos, social chaos, because we need people there to keep things going, right? We need babies to keep the world going, to keep the economy going, to keep the workforce going, and to take care of things. And they wised up to that. So then they turned the tables, and actually the government started a campaign to promote childbearing. And they had this marketing uh, they, and they had commercials on television that encouraged adults to be romantically involved so that they would get back on the ball with having babies because, hey, we need babies to repopulate ourselves so we're about to die off. And 
Advertising, why do you think people pay so much money for advertising? Because it works. And this Be Romantically Involved campaign actually was working in um, Denmark. And it was under the slogan, Do It for Denmark. (laughs) So now things are headed in the right direction. But literally there are places where Christians adhere to this and they are, they're bullied for it. They're persecuted for it. They're falsely accused for it because Christ's teachings are what we might call counter-cultural. It doesn't always go well with us. A few years, I think it was 2012, you will recall the IRS admitted to scrutinizing specifically conservative groups Based on what? Their teachings. Based on the truths. Based on their worldview. They admitted to scrutinizing these groups. And then uh, 2014, the mayor of Houston, Texas, called, tried to collect the sermons of pastors to scrutinize the, the content to see if there was any anti-gay or anti-homosexual rhetoric which would threaten her anti-discrimination law that she wanted to put in on the books. I mean, these kind of things happen. We are falsely accused. We are persecuted because we offend. And there are times where we will be offensive to people. But it's okay to be offensive to people. If you're doing it in the right way because you're living the truth and you're speaking the truth. I say that because just because we have offended people, we have to realize we can't repent for something that was true. Now, you know, probably in your lifetime, you've heard a Christian or a pastor or a friend that gave his life to the Lord speak truth to you and you were very highly offended by it. It happens all the time. So we can't expect to live at peace with everybody when we have this message of the gospel that offends sinners. Perhaps this particular message or passage might offend somebody here. So we have to keep that in mind. Before we worship, we're responsible. Are we responsible for every grudge, for all the enmity, only for the things that we're Actually, we have committed. So there are if you're a writer, if you write little articles or you blog or something, you have probably offended a lot of people with your message of truth. And you just can't catch them all. You can't go to all of them. It's not realistic to to mend these things. Not even possible. So sometimes we just have to move on, continue to worship God, pray for them, leave them in the hands of of God. Now, honestly, I think in many cases, if you think about this scenario of worshiping God with your offer, offering or leaving the altar and going to your brother to reconcile, which one is easier? It makes me wonder if this isn't why Jesus put this so far in the front of his sermon or really in his ministry. He's just launching his ministry here. This is the beginning of his ministry. And I think it's because a lot of times we would rather worship the Lord 
and offer him our praise, our tithes, our money, instead of getting right with human relationships. We love the gospel grace. We love the free grace and love of God. And I think we might could stay at the altar all day long. But when it comes to horizontal relationships, they're hard and they're messy. And yet Jesus is saying it is so important in your worship and living before me. My, my God's concept of community and relationships from marriage down to friendship, down to just living in, in proximity to one another is so important. That Jesus would actually say, just just leave it here. Worship me through reconciliation and then come back. That's how important our relationships are from top to bottom. And I think he knows our hearts would just as soon ignore our sins and maybe even not want to bother with other people's sins if they have offended us. Just so that we can enjoy the free gospel grace and love and revel in that. When John Piper was still pastoring, his church decided to, to um, have a fund drive to pay off debt. And so before they started, actually the, the week before they started that fund drive, to rally his people together in their giving, John Piper actually went to this passage and preached on this before he asked for the money. And he said, uh, this passage is utterly relevant to what we're about as a church in the next week to do. If contempt for a brother or sister or fellow human being imperils your soul, as Jesus makes reference to when he brings hell into the picture. He says, then you can't just come happily on your way to worship next Sunday with your freeing the future pledge. If something like that's in your heart, and that raises some tough questions for us, let's put ourselves to the test. Are we really only committed to the exciting goal of debt elimination? Or are we more committed to the effort of enmity elimination? Is God, is God speaking to our hearts? Are, are we in need of some kind of reconciliation and is it time for that for God's sake are we willing for the kingdom's sake for truth's sake are we willing to to leave our gift at the altar and go to our brother am I willing to put myself out there for gospel grace and to be a witness and for the praise of my heavenly father maybe not put my money in the plate this Sunday until of course we've already taken our offering but whatever it takes, not do that next step of worship. Because I know that really to rightly be related to God, these other relationships, as far as it depends on me, need to be right as well. Am I living for the King? And we want to hold on to that thought for a minute as we look at this last warning. Because he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. While you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. What is 
this all about. I mean, we were talking about, first of all, the command not to murder. Then he dives deep into our hearts. Now he's talking about our relationships. And now he's talking about imprisonment and a judge and fiery flames. And what is all this? Well, Jesus is just saying to his people that might want to follow him or already follow him, watch out. Watch out over this. This, this, is, this is deep stuff. If you're not willing to cherish the life of relationships that are a gift to you, that are a gift to the world, you're, you're just willing to let them die so as not to inconvenience, inconvenience yourself or to walk in the light. Watch out. Despising your brother is harmful to your soul. In Jesus' day, if you, were in, if you were in debt to someone, that person could put you in jail until you paid that debt off. There's another parable that talks about the same thing. That's how it worked. You could be in there a long time. It's kind of hard to pay your debts off when you're behind bars. So when, you, when he starts talking about this, this is, this is an intention getter here. People understood, whoa, yeah, I have some relatives that died in prison for this. They were in debt. Give no opportunity to the devil, Ephesians tells us. So, obviously, God is the judge. So, watch out. He could be put in prison by failing to reconcile and just accruing debt because you're choosing to remain unrepentant. Watch out. You watch out because God, through the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, He has given you the power to change. Even if it's slow, it's change and it counts. So watch out and watch out because you claim to love God and you claim to love marriage and you claim to love family and you claim to love church. And here you are with all this brokenness around you that's on you. Watch out. Watch out because you could forfeit the kingdom blessings that come from God as a result of relationships that he has put into our lives. Watch out because sin will eat you up inside and out. Watch out because when you grow, allow yourself to grow cold of heart and watch out when you start being happy about others, unhappiness. And when you throw names around and throw dirt around because that coldness of heart will stick with you and you will taste hell in these kind of relationships. Watch out. Come to terms quickly. Put your gift down and go. In order to be a kingdom outpost, in order to be the people of God, at least one of us has to be like Christ in this way, or we will not last. You see, relationships make up communities, and communities can die off like relationships. Churches can die off. Like relationships, somebody, at least one of us has to be willing to make the trip back if necessary, be willing to look at our own sin, be willing to forgive, be willing to absorb the cost if necessary, be willing to forgive and to offer grace and love as we have received it from God, be willing to change things that are offensive about ourselves. Somebody has to be willing to be the peacemaker or our iniquities will overcome us. 
But the hope is that if, if, if just one of us can adopt this attitude about the importance of relationships in our marriages, in our families, among our friends, in our church family. Well, then, then that is gospel power. And if two of us can adopt this attitude and, and desire to embrace this attitude, then we're really getting some. Where if three or four of us could just walk out of here, or five or six of us could just walk out of here with this sense of the importance of what this teaching is telling us. Seven or eight of us, if, if part of us or most of us or if all of us would listen to these gospel words and be willing to love like Christ love and to, to forgive like we've been forgiving, then you would see the power of the kingdom of the gospel of God. Then you see heaven on earth. It is this kind of humility and sincerity and submissiveness that creates an earth-shattering warmth in a fellowship like this. And I have been to churches where you know there is not that kind of warmth. It doesn't take long to know, wow, there's coldness. There's friction. There's relational friction in here. And I've also been in the midst of places where there is this electrifying warmth. And it's because of genuine, sincere, humble, gut-wrenching Humble gospel love. And it just creates this electrifying atmosphere of safety, vulnerability, where people want to repent and get right with God. Where people cherish and love relationships for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the truth. It transcends this world and is intended to be God's witness to the world. How? How they relate to one another. How they love one another. It has to be different from the way the world does things or there's no witness at all. Offer your brother the kingdom. Offer your wife, your husband the kingdom. Offer your brothers and sisters and your family the kingdom. Your church family, your community. Offer them the kingdom with the, with the gospel in your heart. And then come back and worship God with abandon like he so loves and desires. Don't forget to come back. Don't forget to come back and worship God where you left off. Because of the sense of go quickly, this imperative in this message, I just want to give us an opportunity to respond. I just want to give the, the Lord an opportunity to work in our hearts, and I want to give us an opportunity to respond. And so... What I have in mind is this. I know reconciliation takes two. And it is kind of a private moment. And maybe this, maybe there's somebody in here that needs to reconcile and you're comfortable with that. And that's wonderful. Whatever the Holy Spirit is saying to you, watch out if you don't do it. But it could be just that this is a, an opportunity for you to come before God. Because this is a place, just like in the Old Testament, there was one place, one altar that you went to worship and bring your tithes. This is where we do it. It's just one place where you can come and maybe just make a commitment. Lord, I, I know, I hear you, and there are relationships, and I need your grace. And maybe this is a time to make a commitment. I can't do it right now. Maybe you can, and you're welcome to do that. I can't do it right now, but God, I am committing to you 
then I'm not going to let it go any longer. I'm committing to you that I am going to, to, to warm my heart up and take whatever steps are necessary as far as it depends on me to get this relationship right. This is just an opportunity for us to respond to the teaching of God. So the altar is open as Jessica plays instrumentally. Search your heart. Is this something that God would have you to do this morning? Worshiping God through this willingness to do whatever you can to glorify Him. A willingness to pray for an attitude that cherishes the life of relationships that God has blessed us with that are so very, very important to Him. God says, come to the altar. And if you find something there, then go. And then come back. God stooped God stooped low and came to this earth so that we can live high and God has given us the teachings of the kingdom so that we can live in it and this is kingdom living cherishing and loving our relationships and I trust that as a body of Christ that we will do what's in our power to submit and if we got one of those relationships or grudges where maybe attempts have been made and failed I just encourage you to not give up let us not become weary in doing good because at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up and maybe you are at a point where you're just not even sure what to do or not even sure you can do it then I encourage you say God give me the strength to make the first baby step I can just a baby step a baby step of repentance in the right direction is a step in the right direction. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. May God bless the preaching of his words. morning.